Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome to Thread, Season 3, Episode 23. Thread is God's Word, tying together all the pieces of your life as a person in ministry, whether it's informally or as a vocation. It's a gathering place for believers who want to learn from God's Word about how to minister to other people more effectively. And in Season 3, we're moving through 2 Corinthians. Today, we're in Chapter 10, Verses 1-6, through and the topic of spiritual war uh, I'm, and this is another one of those podcasts where I am coming from a place, I'm actually in Ho Chi Minh City and you know how every now and then I have to tell you it's going to be super noisy, well this is the worst <laughs> this is the worst ever, I'm on the roof of our hotel because the hotel is concrete with tile floors and it's just like a big bathroom and so the only thing I know I've been here going on a month almost, and we're helping to launch, really excited about it, helping to launch a new media missionary training program, because my whole life is about working with superheroes before they're famous, so I just uh, do everything I can in the generational transfer to pour all that I've learned and all that I know into the lives of emerging young leaders, and to give them the best skills possible for uh, bringing the gospel to the nations, and I'm in a nation that is a communist country. It's gone into capitalism, and they're hardworking people, and it's lots of changes are going on. There's all around me today. There's construction work, and there's horns blowing, and there's people arguing, and there's just all kinds of stuff. But this is a nation in need of the gospel, and it's, it's kind of appropriate that we let the sound of the city be the backdrop for this talk because it's about spiritual war. And um, it's it's an important passage, and it's one that we often quote. I think we quote it out of context sometimes, and we're going to get into that a little bit. So let me just read it to you. I'm going to read the first six verses. Chapter 10, 2 Corinthians. Paul says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face-to-face with you, but bold toward you when away. And I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be, toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So, you know, that, especially the section in the middle, verses 3, three 4, and 5, and we're going to go into that. When we open this passage, you know, uh, verses 1 and 2, it's really a personal note between Paul and, and the Corinthians. He is hoping not to refuel the conflict that has hurt their relationship, but he's pretty sure he needs one last showdown with the rebel group once he's sure that all the other people are solidly on the good side with him. And I don't want to focus on that so much, but it is the context of this passage. And in the study of the Bible, 
Context is everything when you want to discover what a passage really means. What's uh, more quoted and the one that, that's probably of more interest to us, it's verses 3 through 5. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. All right, Uh, let's go to verse 3. We are in the world. He said, we live in this world, but we do not wage war as the world does. We're in this world, but not of this world. It's a solid Christian worldview to understand that there are two layers on this world. There is the physical layer and as you look around you see it you hear it you experience it it's the world that surrounds you with senses and sounds and people and experiences but behind that world and actually on top of that world energizing that world is an it's an invisible world but it's not a make-believe world it's a real place And it is the spiritual dimension. And there is a dark war going on. And I refer you back to earlier podcasts when I just can't get past the the importance of Dr. Eben Alexander's work on near-death experiences. And he went into this work not, you know, as a Christian trying to prove the afterlife he went in as a secular physician who is a neurosurgeon uh, who believes you know as most of science did that our brain creates our mind creates the feeling that you know we are conscious and and it's all you know this piece of meat electrified in our head that makes us you know, be feel like we're humans at least. You know, like the the human experience, and then he had his own experience where his uh, he got meningitis and his spine swelled up and he he was brain dead, and as they were disconnecting, um, he suddenly came completely back online. I mean, they were they were disconnecting his life support. They were at that stage in his care, and he came back online completely and had been conscious. You know had had no way to be conscious, but he had knowledge of things that you'd have to be in the room with your eyes open and see it, you know? So it, it just spun him out of his worldview, and it, it collapsed the, the mental kingdom that secular science had built in him, and it put him on a thirst to discover the truth about our, our world and about being humans. And he hooked up with another doctor who had uh, over 10,000 near-death experience studies. And uh, I'll just get to the end of it. Um, You can find this on the, um, what do you call that, NPR Intelligence Squared. Uh, There's a debate between him and some others uh, in a secular environment about is there a spiritual dimension to life. And his conclusion is, he said, my conclusion is in my research, the brain does not and cannot. We have no idea where the brain could create a mind. Uh, He said, the brain does not create a mind. The brain limits our reality to what we can handle. 
And just when I came down to that phrase in his research, it's like, wow, my brain is a filter to keep me from seeing and experiencing basically the spirit world. It it makes me only see and experience the rational world. And it limits my world to what my belief system says is possible. You know, so Jesus can look at water and he transcends these limitations. And he says, I could walk on that. And so he does. And for a moment when Peter says, Lord, call me, make me come to you. He also has this moment of insight where somehow he moves past his mind's filters that would tell him uh, this can't be done in the physical world. And suddenly he can walk on water too. So, you know, Jesus is able to look at his disciples and say, man, if you really understood this, you would know that you could speak to a mountain and it would throw itself in the water. That we are limited by our thoughts and not just in a uh, you know, self-help way. Uh, to challenge you to know you could be more successful, that we we are truly limited in an imaginary way to keep us from uh, experiencing a world that would freak us out if we saw it. And uh, it's a it's a spiritual realm, and it's a belief that Christians have and an understanding that we have that we are in a world we're not of this world but that there is a spiritual world and there, there is war going on. And it brings us to the very real uh, phenomenon of spiritual resistance. You know, try to do something wonderful. Try to do something new and try to do something creative and you will experience resistance. You'll have resistance within your own self. You'll have resistance from the outside world. Anytime you... You create things, you know, you're making progress. Anytime you're trying to move the world to be a better place or anytime you're just, even as an artist, you want to create something of beauty and inspiration or as an evangelist, you want to lead others to Jesus. You want to disciple them into the new life he offers or, or a host of other things. Try to do these things and you will encounter resistance. You know, we, uh, Sherry and I left uh, the life we had grown comfortably into in ministry as pastors. And I was a college president and she was like school mom. And uh, it was, we loved that life. But then we felt like we were supposed to go into media missions and uh, went back to school and began this journey that we've been on for the last 10 years. And a friend of mine said, watch what's about to happen to you. Uh, Note all the amount of resistance that's going to come into your life. And it's just, it's ridiculous, the amount of of resistance. Like every little step, you have to fight for it. And it's because of how spiritually charged the creative world is. I mean, if you get into the world of movie making and music and all this, it's, It is a place, because it's a creative realm and God is the creator and the devil can't create, he just wants to deface and vandalize the creation. And so you end up in a a supercharged spiritual environment. I mean, we've had staff members get cancer at 30. We've had 
it was like every year as we gear up for our new school, uh, we just look around us and, and like batten down the hatches because we're pretty much anticipating a storm's going to hit at some point. And we, we've just learned we have to soldier through it, that we can't, we can't stop and say, oh, we're being resisted. must be God doesn't want us to do it. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. You could use resistance as a compass. And it will help you. <laughs> It'll help you know the will of God because every time you point at the will of God with your life, and you start moving forward into it, something's going to come to try to stop you. You know, it's going to try to stop you when you're just getting started, and it's going to try to stop you when you're within sight of the finish line. You know, resistance is going to show up whenever you're moving. Uh, in a positive direction. Uh, I just think Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art is um, a powerful study in uh, resistance. Now i got a doorbell ringing behind me while I'm talking about resistance. Um, it's not a Christian book, but man, he's got his finger on it. I'm going to read you a quote from it. He says, Most of us have two lives. There's the life we live, and there's the unlived life within us. And between the two stands resistance. Wow. Spiritual resistance does not want you to have the unlived life you could have had. So if you want to make progress in this life, you have to wage spiritual war. When Paul is looking at his trouble in Corinth, he doesn't just think, oh, yes, I need to look on my conflict strategy and I need to get along better with my brothers and I hope they'll get along with me. No, he sees it as just one more example of the kind of battle that he has to go into day by day when you enter a place of darkness and you want to proclaim the lordship of Jesus and declare his authority over the place and over all the people who live there, you will find that all the socialist states in every country, you can say, you know, Christian nations and and pagan nations or uh, anti-God nations, irreligious nations. It really doesn't matter because government, religion, the press, business, the banking system, the entertainment industry, education, the world of the academia, uh, all these systems have been invaded by dark anti-Christ spiritual forces and they will use the power and influence of these citadels against the kingdom of God. And so your very first principle from this lesson today is principle number one, if we want to make progress, we must wage war. It is a wartime activity to make progress, not a peacetime activity. You have to take it. You have to take land. You have to push and keep pushing. So War is part of progress. You've got to engage in spiritual war. Secondly, second principle, we must not lower ourselves to the level of this world. We mustn't trust our abilities to use their weapons against the spiritual darkness that they stand for. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but you know, one of them is that it's contrary to God's ways. But another practical reason is it won't work. It just won't work. When we lower ourselves to the level of this world and we try to use their weapons against this world, it doesn't work. Those weapons aren't for us. Now, this world has had war for the past 
however many years we've been here, let's say 10,000 years, um, the world's been at war that long. There's been war between nations. There's wars inside of nations. There's war between tribes. There's war between neighbors. There's wars within families. There are wars within marriages. And in all this uh, life of war that humans have, and, you know, our history is really just the history of our wars, uh, we've developed weapons of mass destruction. We've developed human weapons, uh, bullying, dividing loyalties by sowing lies among friends, enticing people with money and position, uh, corrupting people in many different ways, using abusive language, using physical threats of violence, using gossip, using feigned love when we really just want to use somebody for advantage, using the weapon of the law, using the power of money to sue people in court, using political power. And, you know, I'm old enough to have been alive. I wasn't very old, but I was very conscious of what was going on with the rise of the moral majority in the 70s. And it seemed like, you know, it was the rise of Christian power in politics, that Reagan-era politicians, they had to get the church on board with them before they could do anything. And and we we were successful, put that in quotes, please, and we were giddy and excited at what power this brought us. But really, it was the... Um, it was the end of the acceptance of Christianity in the general culture in America. When we grabbed political power and it so excited us and the ugliness that immediately came out once we felt the, you know, felt the handles of power in our hands, we exposed ourselves and we exposed ourselves as a people by our naivete in politics I'll never forget the uh, Bush the second era staffer who was a Christian and an article I read where he was just talking about how laughably easy it was in the Bush era to rope in pastors to support them. He said all we had to do is bring them to the White House and they're like falling all over themselves. Um, and, it, you know, as soon as we try to play politics and we think and see we're doing it again right now, there's a lot of. Christian activity in politics once again as Christian. Like, I mean, if you want to be active in politics, be active. But to put the Christian label out there with it, uh, you know, once we expose how naive we are and also how we behave once we get out there, how some of us behave, uh, it, it actually hurts us in the end. And as soon as the moral majority had grabbed their, their power for their little moment in history... Uh, and had so hurt the image of what Christianity is in America and caused the culture actually to uh, back off of us. It's like, uh, they're not so Christian after all. You know, they're, they're actually unchristian. Uh, immediately, the gay movement bared its teeth and launched a carefully crafted plan to invade the political, educational, entertainment pillars And we've been losing ground ever since in the culture war for the heart and soul of America. And you can do this all, you know, just spread this example all over the world. And the current ugliness that far-right groups are displaying 
in our daily media, again in America, it's being linked to Christianity. And we're going to suffer another huge backlash if we don't distance ourselves from all this hate. We must contest, but not like the world does. We lose. Whenever we try to use money, sex, and power, just like they do, we lose. We lose when we bully people. We lose when we bribe. We lose when we seek status. We lose when we threaten violence. Or when we get in somebody's face and we shout bigoted, racist, ignorant stuff. Um, I remember hearing a man tell his story. Uh, he's actually the founder of YWAM. And he was telling his story about being in a house with another brother when two Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on the door. And what they didn't know was that both of these men really understood the, their religion, understood their tactics, and understood how to find all the weak spots. So when they came in trying to convert them, uh, a debate ensued, and it didn't take long until the Jehovah's Witnesses were like totally, you know, bumfuzzled and confused and stumbling, and, and they, they just finally packed up and just left the room. And, uh, you know, totally in defeat. And the two brothers that were there were high-fiving each other. And as they did, the Lord spoke to Brother Loran, and he said, you lost. And I was like, what do you mean? I mean, look how strong we were. And the Lord said, you, their spirit invaded you, and you began to act just like them. So, yeah, you won your little talk, but you entered into their world, and you became like them. So Paul's very, very conscious that he does not want what happens in Corinth to be like me versus you and me and my buddies versus you and your group and, and I'm stronger. And, you know, he, he's not going to do that. He's determined not to use the world's ways to deal with spiritual problems. So that's your second principle for the day. Our third principle is we do have weapons and we have to become expert in the use of our own unique weapons. So, like David, you know, we must use weapons in war, but not their weapons. We use the weapons that suit us. And I've lived almost all my life now in Asia, and it's just amazing to me that somebody like Gandhi would pick up our spiritual weapons. And it's sad that it takes a non-Christian to use the Jesus method to overthrow a foreign invader that had grown rich through selling opium and slaves and raiding the resources of the developing world. And here are most Christians supporting the continued forced colonization of the developing world. And it takes a non-believer to do the Christian thing and stand against injustice using non-violence. It's just so puzzling to me. Ironic. We have to be... Uh, we have to be strong and we have to battle, but we have to be better than them. We have to be deeper than them. We have to be stronger. We have to be more pure. We have to be righteous. We have to be humble. We have to be forgiving and we have to be uncompromising. And we've been given, you know, by God, this case filled with weapons that have been forged in another world. They aren't the weapons of man. They're the weapons of God himself. They're the weapons that his angels use to make war in the heavenlies. They're God-like weapons. They have divine power. And Paul says, unlike the world's weapons, 
which corrupt us when we touch them, God's weapons are energized with his own power, and they can demolish strongholds. Now, let's talk about strongholds. Because we've gone, you know, we've gone on to imagine this verse through the lens of medieval Europe, which came a thousand years later. And so when we talk about strongholds, a lot of times people get the idea we're talking about these big fortresses, you know. And some even teach that there are these big invisible demon fortresses over our cities. And we've got to somehow go to a geographically higher place. And then we all intercede and we cast down these invisible demon fortresses. And we do that with prayer. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it might sound good, but this is a pagan concept, pure and simple. Uh, you find it in the Old Testament and you find it from pagan people who are trying to overthrow God's people. And they keep going to a higher and higher place because their ideas are higher on the mountain, higher God. Jesus never did any such thing. And nor did his disciples ever do anything like this. This is not how they saw the world. There are strongholds, and they are built by the darkness. But, I mean, keep reading. Strongholds are inside the minds of people. We don't need to apply a geographic concept, you know, that works for a physical world and apply it to the spiritual world as though the spiritual world is, is the physical world you know, bigger, just like the thought that God is a big man. God is much more complex than we are. We're just a shadow of, we're just an image of who he is. And, you know, humans are amazing, but God's not a big human. And the spiritual world is not our world. It's not like our world. There are strongholds, but the strongholds that matter are in the minds of people. And the Corinthians, for all their Christianity still had these, this is an important talk, okay? They still had these places in their minds that did not belong to Jesus. They had thought blocks and they had a worldview that had come from the enemy. It was part of their culture and it was still in them and these thoughts were built by the darkness and these thoughts were keeping certain people in the Corinthian church bound up because their thought process was being guided by these evil thought blocks. And these were, these were the strongholds that Paul is keen to attack. And that's our fourth principle. Spiritual war is primarily a battle in the mind against false truth. Spiritual war is primarily a battle in the mind against false truth. This is how Paul says it. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Uh, Ralph Martin reminds us in his commentary about this passage that uh, Paul is pointing out that the true enemies are not the other persons, but their thoughts, their arguments. You know, he's already explained in, in the same book, 2 Corinthians 3, that believers, true believers, are those whose understanding is no longer darkened like we have a veil on our mind, but that we are now ministers of a new covenant and that miraculously, through the Lord, we can see the world clearly. And in in 2 Corinthians, Paul's got a worldview that this is a stark contrast to unbelievers whose minds are blinded by the God of this world. And so if we're going to reach into the lives of people who are still in bondage, it requires a power 
beyond human power. And so the spirit goes to war, even uh, on in the life of these people who are still like one foot in, one foot out of the darkness. And he comes to demolish their thoughts. He's got to, it's like making war. You got to tear down the, the battle place. You got to tear down the towers. And so these, there's these thoughts in their mind and their thoughts at war against God. They are thoughts that abase God. They're thoughts that are uh, antagonistic to what God says is true. And so in the spirit, we're going to have to go into the lives of people. And Paul's talking about individuals to, to storm these walls and break down the gates of these forts. And then step two is to take rebel thoughts as prisoners of war until these thoughts can be reformed until, you know, there's repentance. And then we can, these thoughts will come under the authority of Jesus as Lord of all. You know, the battlefield of ideas is determining the course of nations today. Every nation in the world, every family, every person in the world is locked into a battle for their soul. And ideas are clanging like swords on a battlefield. Paul has total confidence in the ability of the Holy Spirit to use him and his team to break the hold of false truth and tear it down from the minds of other people. And it's a pretty important part of this passage if you look at it. Uh, you know, some people would say, you know, that this passage, you know, how do I apply the command to tear down these thoughts in my mind? But if you read it, that isn't what he's saying. Uh, Paul isn't talking about something going on inside his own mind or inside the mind of another Christian. He's talking about This is even bigger. He's talking about the mind of another person. That Paul, the warrior, is going into the minds of other people because in their mind, they have arguments that are proud. They have thoughts that are lifted up against God. And Paul needs to go into their mind and defeat these arguments by the power of the Holy Spirit and take their mind captive until they become the people who have the mind of Christ, people who are obedient to Christ. So it's, you know, it's not, it's bigger than the thought that I need God to get into my mind and change the way I think. He's talking about a ministry task. This is huge. He's talking about a kind of ministry where you go under apostolic authority into the minds of other people. And you work on the thoughts that are keeping them in bondage. That's power. That's a power that I don't think we think about or study. And I want you to think about what it would do in ministry. You know how how often we do ministry, like, let's say, to people in the streets. And you go there and you love and you show love and you give them, you know, fresh socks and you give them food and you give them a place to take a shower what you really need to do is somehow get inside their head. It's like, man, if I could get in your mind and change the way you think, because the only reason they are where they're at is that their, their thoughts have got them there. Uh, I, women who are just like broken and they go through life broken. It's their thoughts. Men who've, who've, who are just weak. 
They don't have the strength that has always been in a man. They don't have the, the drive and the direction and they're aimless. It's their thoughts. Men who are enslaved to pornography, it's their thoughts. Abusive husbands, abusive mothers, it's their thoughts. People locked in depression, it's their thought life. You know, most of the world of ministry is a ministry in this arena. So, yes, we rebuke demons. We must. We rebuke disease. That's how you heal people. But we need to look deeper into the nature of spiritual war. And Paul was confident of winning this kind of war in the lives of other people. He believed he could lock into an engagement with people whose minds were filled with lies, but they believed these lies to be true. And Paul believed that he could go to war engaging them, reasoning with them, pressing them, forcefully getting at the root of their heart and exposing what was a lie and showing what is the truth. And Paul believed that he was called to this ministry and that in the end of it, the other person would be set free. They wouldn't be broken down. We're not talking about crushing people. This can't be done just like with a cool, calculating, you know, nature of a detached psychologist. God bless psychologists. They do a similar work, but in a secular way. Paul said you have to challenge these thoughts. You have to challenge people for holding these thoughts because we have a will and we can let go of thoughts. But it's an emotional engagement with other people, and it is filled with spiritual power to get at the will and to break the root and to tear down the mental prisons in their mind that have been built by the devil himself. It is one of the hardest things that you can ever get involved in. One, you know, Trying to control your own mind and keep it clean like this is one level. But Paul's talking about doing it in the lives of other people. Calling things out. It gets bloody sometimes. But if everybody sticks with it, the Holy Spirit will win the day and lives will be set free. Uh, this is the main work, honestly, of Media Light. Uh, we, I mean, we are a media training ministry, and we give uh, young Christians the media tools that they need to learn to communicate in the new normal world language of media. But if you're really on campus for 10 weeks, and the reason we do it in community on campus is that our real work, the one that we don't sell and the one that we don't say, come here for this, but it's what really happens. The real work is setting students free inside. You know, the, the three stages of, of, I think, spiritual care is cleansing, alignment, and rest. You know, if you fall down and you break your arm and it comes out, you know, bones come out through your skin, the first thing they're going to do is cleanse this wound. And to do that, they're going to put a bright light on it. They're not going to, like, secretly take you into a dark closet. You can't keep it secret. You've got to come out with it. And you've got to get in an environment where you're willing to come out with it. So you put your, you know, your arm up. You're in a public place. There's bright lights. And they're going to work on cleansing the, the disease out of your wound. And then they're going to have to pull on that, that broken limb and it's not going to feel good. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be like the worst thing. But you can feel their care. And they have to give you hope that you're going to be different after this. That you've got to get yourself aligned. Because that's what's wrong with us. You can't leave it. You can't just say, oh, poor baby, let me cleanse this. 
and then leave it. It's got to get lined up. And what's wrong with us is that we're not in alignment with God. You know, the whole point, as I read Scripture, the point of the gospel is that God has a space that he lives in. We call it the heavenlies, the heavens. And man has a space, the earth. And in God's space, the will of God is completely done. There is nothing in God's space that is not God's will. You know, his desire, his longing, his heart is reflected in everything in his space. And when he made the world, God's space was in our space until the Great Rebellion. And we pushed him away from us. And so now you have our space, the earth, which is filled with the anti-will of God. You know, people whose lives are nowhere close to what God wants for them. His desire for their life is not being fulfilled. He does not want them to live the life that they are living. And the work of Jesus was to come and reunite these two spheres and bring the kingdom of God, which is where the overlap occurs. When, uh, when God is present and active in the world of men, the kingdom of God is there. The rule of God, the reign of God, the activity of God is there. And so we come to take captive thoughts. We come to bring the will of God into the lives of other people. And so it starts with cleansing, but then it has to become alignment where we line up with God's will. And then you need rest, like quit picking at it, quit messing with it, leave it alone. Just live in the body, live the life of worship and ministry and learning and fellowship and laughter and food and in you know, live the good life and rest while you heal inside. And this ministry is successfully being done all over the world, but it isn't commonly being done. In order to do this, and I think it's what the church is supposed to be, in order to do this in the lives of people, we need true fellowship. Church has to become a community, not a weekly showbiz event. You know, we, we start our community. When students come on campus, the first thing we do is go to the mountains and we make a necklace. We each make our own necklace. And this necklace has got uh, five things on it. It's the three events that made me the person I am today and two things I am currently struggling with. And we put, we put beads on the chain and we put different objects on, on our necklace uh, to represent these things, and we tell the true story of our life. And in one of our recent schools, you know, we sat down and everybody had theirs ready, and the first person to share immediately shared about something so personally embarrassing. You know, when he got to the part about what are you currently struggling with, it was a current struggle in something that is humiliating and embarrassing, but it's a spiritual stronghold. And as soon as he began to tell his story, another young man in the group stood, he spoke up and he said, oh, that's what we're doing. And he took his necklace and he put it back on the table. He said, I've got to make a new necklace. He said, hold me to it. When it's my turn to talk, make me tell the truth the way he just told the truth. And we went on, you know, we've got millions of people coming to a thing called church and we claim it has the power to set them free and they're dressing and they're smiling politely 
and everybody looks nice, but so many of them are not free. And they're not free because it's all in their mind. Paul says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And this is the essence of discipleship. But before we can do that in the lives of others, we have to do it ourselves. And in order to do that, we need an honest place to do this. That's what church is supposed to be. And so we're, we're bringing people in and we're having this thing, but it's becoming more and more about entertainment. And, uh, you know, the pressure's on the performance of Sunday. And then it's like, wow, glad that's over. And it's not the body life that brings any form of lasting change to people. It's the weapon. You know, we're using a weapon of this world, the entertainment. And honestly, we're not good at it. We're nowhere near what they are. You can't compete with the world if you want to use entertainment as our stand. But if you want to use having your life changed and your mind renewed and becoming like Jesus in your thoughts and watching what it does to your daily world, wow, yeah, we can do that if we're a healthy church led by healthy people. And you can't do this on the macro level. You've got to get down in the micro level and have small church. You, know, you need groups with never, never more than seven people. Seven is where the mathematical breakdown happens. If you've got a small group and it has more than seven, it's not small. Uh, you can't talk with seven people. Almost everybody's quiet. One person's talking. You need to open up your heart and tell the truth about your life. And I promise you, if you, if you can do this in your own life, find a circle of trusted friends that you can tell the truth to. And if you can build this into your disciple-making with others, you're going to see some changes because we've got to get into the lives of people and bring change. And I love when our students, like we're here in Vietnam and I'm watching these students and they've had just a little taste in the Vietnamese program, their first time to run it. And it's a lot shorter school, but the ones running it are the students who came out of our program and they know what it did to them to find, you know, to find alignment. And so I'm watching them run this school. And even, you know, while they're training people, they're, they're pulling students aside and they're talking about those glaring things in their lives that nobody's addressing and they're addressing it. And it's in love and they're reasoning and they're but pushing. They're pushing because they know what it did to them. And they're pushing because they feel authorized to go into the life of another person and see what's obviously there that they can't see and they use energy and they lean on them, but they do it in love because they know this is where true life change takes place. It happened to them. It's happening now in the lives of others. And they want to give their friends a chance to change their lives. And they know that when we can get inside uh, and get inside our minds and find those thoughts, those beliefs that are holding us away from coming under the authority of Christ, if we can get under those and uproot them in the power of the Holy Spirit and pull them out of our minds, pull them out of the minds of other people and see those, see those minds line up with Christ and accept new truth that, you know, we come alive. That's how life happens for us. This is ministry. This is spiritual war. This is the anointed work that Paul knew he had been authorized to do and that we have been authorized to also get involved in with the lives of other people. Well, uh, I hope you're enjoying Thread. I hope it's helping you grow in the way that you minister to other people and just get your own mind set up. 
to be a ministering person? If so, please just use the buttons uh, in the bottom there to share with your friends. If you can leave a comment, that's always great. And don't forget, we've got a, a thread with Chuck Quinley Hangout Place on Facebook. So look for it and join us there. And let's discuss all that we're learning from God's Word with thread. Don't forget, you're the light of the world. So shine on. <laughs>